so the question is, is how can God, how come it says you are a God who hides himself in secret? And then later he says, I haven't hidden myself. I've spoken plainly and openly to you. Um, the plain command of scripture was exactly true. It was, um, seek my face and you will live. I didn't say that in vain. It wasn't my fault that you didn't seek me. That was very, very, very clear. It was very clear from the time of Adam and Eve on. All of mankind knew it. It was that clear. And yet, how did God reveal this plan to bring all of this about when there's no one seeking after him because in order for anybody to seek after God there has to be salvation how can there be salvation when men are sinners and God is righteous and men know that they're sinners so they're not going to flee to God and all of that complicated history and as, I, as he's revealing that on the one hand it's very simple seek the Lord's face and you will live as Joel said, it was very easy. Whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Whoever, period. And yet, how many do? If it was left at that, as true as that is, as beautiful that is, as loving as that is, if it was left at that, all of mankind would have been destroyed. Because none of them did. What was hidden was, as C.S. Lewis says, the older magic that not even the devil knew about. The older, the older, the wisdom of God that wasn't revealed to anyone until its time, that God himself would take on flesh and come in the womb of the Virgin Mary and be laid in a manger and learn his alphabet and have tummy problems and cry with colic and be hungry and thirsty, naked and ashamed and crucified. When the tradition says when the Roman soldiers started beating him, they realized he wasn't God after all because gods don't bleed. Mm. And then they crucified him. How can that be in the mind of God? How can that bring about the salvation of the world? Even Jesus' 12 closest friends that he told over and over and over and over again exactly what was going to happen still didn't understand and still didn't believe. This is what he means by hiding himself. The command itself is very easy, very simple. Come to me and live. But everything involved with bringing that about is massive. Nothing less than a new birth. Did that answer your question? Yes. Okay. And it actually, you kind of segued into my second one, which is verse 22, which says, Turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth. Yes. Am I wrong in understanding that to indicate that we do have agency? In that decision? Yes, <laughs> we have agency. But once again, the, the agency, um, I read, I know I've mentioned this before, and I should find this chart. If you've ever tried to read Francis Turretin, um, he's incredibly difficult to get through because he has such a precise, logical mind. But he spells out precisely what we mean as Reformed believers when we talk about free will. Um, we do not mean by free, by free will... Um, that uh, we, we don't believe that man is a robot, that man is uh, controlled or compelled by God, or that his will is not his own. His will is his own. 
um, what we believe is that the will goes with the nature. Man will always choose what he believes to be good because that's how he was created. He will freely choose what he believes to be good, but he will always choose according to his nature. In order for the will to seek God, it has to be set free. Luther talks about the bondage of the will. So when he says, turn to me all the ends of the earth, that command goes out and it's sincere. God didn't say it in vain, just like he didn't say, seek me in vain. It's a sincere invitation for all the ends of the earth to turn to God. And they will do it freely once their will has been set free. Remember, they come to Jesus in chains. But even that, the drawing in chains to Christ, even that's the draw of the Holy Spirit because they won't do it unless they're drawn. No one can come to me except the Father who hath sent me draw him and I will raise him up at the last day. So Turretin draws the distinction between the Arminian view of free will, the Remonstrance view of free will, the Lutheran view of free will, the Reformed view of free will, and the Catholic view of free will, and he really pinpoints the whole thing down. I don't remember all of it, but I found it very helpful in saying, no, as Reformed, we don't deny free will. We have free agency. We make that choice. We, and yet God's decree is infinite. We can't pry into that. There's no way to pry into that. We pry into the infinite decree by coming to Christ. <laughs> um, that's what's been revealed to us. Turn to me all the ends of the earth. And so this invitation is sincere. Anyone in all of the earth, including anyone who is listening to this recording and listening to this tape that feels completely hopeless and completely torn down and feel like God can never save them, this promise is for you. Turn to me. If you live on the ends of the earth, which is all of us, Turn to me, and you'll be saved. You'll have the righteousness of Christ. That's it. No ifs, ands, or buts. Turn to me. It's a beautiful promise. Any other questions? Um, I'm not sure if I understood it um, correctly, but um, is it correct to understand that when Jesus is said to be our head, um, it, 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 that does not necessarily mean that he is like our boss. Right. Like in a hierarchical sense. Right. Because right. I, I, I was somehow always under the impression that um, Jesus is like our boss um, and, and like we're under his authority. Um, maybe like that um, authority submission mindset is not fully gone away. Yeah, the umbrella thing. Um, and on the one hand, here's what we have to say. We have to say that Jesus being God and the creator of heaven and earth is absolutely the boss, <laughs> the, the commander of all. He is sovereign and his decree is authoritative and has consequences and he does command. However, that never saves anyone. In Jeremiah 31, Jeremiah said, uh, God said through Jeremiah, I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel. The covenant that you broke even though I was a husband to you. Um, that word, I've gone over this before, is Baali, my husband, my lord, my master. Um, and yet in Hosea, he says, you will no longer call me Baali, you will call me Ishi, my man. That's the one flesh aspect, signified by the union of a husband and a wife, as Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5, the sexual relationship between a husband and a wife, but also uh, signified with the head and the body. If you have 
the head uh, yelling at the hand, saying, I told you to pick up your dishes, then you've got a problem with the body. <laughs> it isn't that. It's this union. If you have the hand rebelling against the head and not doing, then you've got a problem. If you stub your toe and the head yells at the toe for being hurt, that's an illness, not a healthy body. This is the figure. The, the, the use of head as chief, as boss, as commander, that was very, very, very rare and only metaphorical at times in the Greek world. Extremely rare. It meant this noggin on top of, the, top of your neck. And then it had metaphorical uses. But the word... For one thing, if what Paul meant when he said the head was that, then he would have been absolutely no different than the patriarchal system of the Greco-Roman world. And so what he would have said would have been completely contrary to everything he just taught in the book of Ephesians. Because the book of Ephesians is all about our union with Christ and being in Christ. In fact, I'm thinking of doing like little podcasts every day going through the book of Ephesians as I have time. Um, the other thing, at, I want you to hold that thought because I am planning a schedule of doing a series of workshops through uh, this teaching on marriage, which is so rare today, and I think everybody really needs to hear it. So watch my site and watch my page online for announcements coming up on, on uh, the headship body metaphor in scripture and what that actually means because it goes deeper than the relationship of a husband and a wife at home. It goes to the heart of the gospel. Because if you view the husband as the boss of the home and the wife better get in line and do what she's told, which is so prevalent in these patriarchal movements that the husband's blessed, the wife's blessedness comes from doing what she's told, you will always inevitably have that same view of the gospel. I know one man who said, yeah, Jesus also ran money changers out of the temple with a whip. I looked at him, I said, but they weren't his bride. That's a different thing. They, were harming, they were harming his bride. That was the problem. The Pharisees, yeah. So um, that's, that's what, uh, yeah, when we talk about headship, or headship, I, I'm with Carmen. I don't like that term, but I'm not sure what other one to use. When you talk about headness, let's do headness. Talking about Christ as head, you're not talking about the boss, even though he is. He reminded his disciples of that. You call me Lord and Master, and you say right, because I am. But I call you friends. Um, because what saves the world is not God as our Lord and Master. God was always that. The thundering from Mount Sinai, that was the voice of Christ. Didn't save anybody. The invitation from Mount Zion is the one that saves.